Welcome to the RSP Cast Film and Data. I'm Matt Waldman, and joining me on a weekly basis is Adam Harstead with FootballGuys.com. Adam, always good to see you. Always good to be seen. Yeah, well, we're going to be seeing a good bit of you today, talking about a few things that are, that um, include, um, you know, football in a salary cap environment, yard um, touchdowns following yards, and then we're going to touch upon an idea about whether there's any validity or where that might be more myth than validity when it comes to the idea that running quarterbacks, quarterbacks who have the big play running ability have shorter careers or will have shorter careers. And it's a, and it's something that you can, that may be predictable or not, you know, we'll get into to some of that. Um, you know, first let's, let's talk about touchdowns following yards. I know that's something that, that you've written about in the past, and I and I've seen you talk a little bit about Alvin Kamara, um, and some of the stats that were up that that he had going on prior to his touchdown outburst a couple of weeks ago, and I thought that was kind of you know fitting um, from that standpoint. So you know, ex- explain what you you tend to write about at Football Guys with this idea, and and, and how that works. Yeah, so I do a weekly column at Football Guys called Regression Alert, and the whole point is um, we're looking at statistics that are not very stable and are likely to regress, and we're talking about how we can take advantage of that for fantasy football. And kind of the goal of the column, um, I try to stay away from the esoteric stuff because it's kind of a give a man a fish but also teach a man to fish at the same time kind of column. Um, And so I look at like a lot of like really simple, easy stats that just anybody can look at and get a good sense of like who's going to start performing a lot worse going forward, who's going to start performing a lot better. Um, And my favorite stat to dunk on is yards per carry because it's basically like a pseudo random number generator. Like everybody thinks that, that it's this great measure of running back talent, but especially over small samples. And by small samples here, I mean even like 300 carries over the course of a season. It's just way, way, way too random. It's, um, it's too heavily influenced by a few long outlier runs. Um, it's largely measuring a guy's straight line speed because um, it's not measuring a guy's ability to like break through that first level of defenders. It's just measuring his ability to stretch that 12-yard gain into like a 60-yard gain if he has the long speed to do it. Um, so that's my favorite stat to dunk on. And then my second is um, it's a stat I started looking at a number of years ago called yard-to-touchdown ratio. Um, And there's this, everybody kind of knows that touchdowns are a little bit random, a little bit fluky. They're not as reliable as other statistics. Um, And people have a lot of ways of like telling whether a guy's touchdown production is sustainable or unsustainable. But one of the simplest and most elegant ones um, that I really like is by comparing it to his yardage total. And if you look historically, there is some actual variance in in a, in players' yard to touchdown ratio. Julio Jones averages like 220 yards for every touchdown he scores. Everybody knows Julio doesn't score that many touchdowns. He's famous for it. Des Bryant averaged about 100 yards for every touchdown he scored. Um, Des Bryant was a noted touchdown machine. He was famous for it. But that's about the range. You can average between about 100 yards per touchdown and 220 yards per touchdown at the absolute extremes over large sample sizes. And that's, I mean, these are like meme level outliers like that, that people make jokes about. For most players, they're going to average like 140 to 170 yards for every touchdown they score. 
over a large enough sample size. And I started writing about this, I think in 2014 or 2015. Um, and I, I'm looking at the history and I'm like, basically you have to go back to World War II to find a wide receiver that had a long career and, and broke out of this range. But at the time, Rob Gronkowski was just having, just being an absolute scoring monster. I think he was at like 75 yards per touchdown. And we talked about Gronk last week and how Gronk is like such an outlier and he was so dominant. And so I said at the time, you know, touchdowns follow yards. Everybody's going to be between 100 and 200 roughly, um, except it's possible that Gronk might break that mold. And it was funny watching over the next five, six, seven years, because every year Gronk's career total was creeping closer and closer and closer and closer. And he retired again at i think he was like right at 100 yards per touchdown by the time he <laughs> retired so even this guy who i'm like i think he might be the outlier like even he obeys this natural law of football um with running backs it can if you get like the specialists like tj duckett who like they're only getting carries at the goal line they might have under 100 um, or the guys they're vulturing, like Warwick Dunn, had over 200. But but by and large, if you're an NFL football player, it doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how bad you are, you're going to score, on average, about one touchdown for every 100 to 200 yards. And then knowing that, you can just look at who has um, touchdowns that don't fall into the range that would be predicted by their yardage total, and you can just bet that they'll start scoring more or less going forward. That's fascinating. And, and yeah, I mean... Alvin Kamara was a good example of that this year. It seemed like um, where he was going a, a pretty long, he had gone a pretty long stretch and then had an out total outburst a couple of weeks ago. Um, so is there anybody like that, that you know of? Um, and if not, it's no big deal, but is there anybody that you, you, that you think is about to follow that rule that, that has been gone ahead a bit of a, a drought compared to their yardage recently? Well, Mixon was the guy, but he kind of solved that one in a hurry. Yeah. Uh, that uh, Mixon is no longer out of line with what is expected. Um, no, offhand, I forget. Like, a lot of my best targets um, all just kind of had big explosive outbursts. Austin Eckler, it was funny. Eckler, after three weeks, had no touchdowns, and he had a ton of yards. Um, and it's like, this is a guy who has a proven history of being able to convert yards into touchdowns, so that's, that's weird. Um yeah, I'd have to take a look at the list again. It, I, I think in another week or two, I'm due to rerun it. Um, but it's pretty easy to just pull up like pro football reference and look at the yardage leaders and check their touchdowns. Sure, without a doubt. So yeah, we'll we'll follow up on that another another time down the line. Um, one of the things too that you know, let's let's move on to talking about this idea that winning football in a salary cap environment is a function of of you know how much surplus value players give relative to their contract i'd have to think russell wilson was a great example of that a number of years ago for for the seattle seahawks um in terms of the value that that he able was able to present and for what they were able to do with that surplus but i'm sure there are many better examples since since that time yeah um this came up a lot with the Tyreek Hill trade by the Chiefs uh, this offseason. Um, and I, I said at the time, you know, if Tyreek Hill is worth $25 million a year, if that's, that's what he's worth in a contract sense. And the Miami Dolphins traded, I forget what it was, like two firsts and a second or whatever it was. If However many picks they traded to pay Tyreek Hill $25 million a year, 
they overpaid by however many picks that was. Um, and Tyreek Hill's been awesome. I mean, he's setting records. He has the most receiving yards by any receiver through nine games in NFL history. Um, even before he was traded, everybody knew he's one of the top three to five wide receivers in the NFL. He's an amazing weapon. Um, head coach Mike McDaniel is, is such a creative mind, and he's been able to unlock a lot of things with Tyreek Hill that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. Um, but at the end of the day, the thing about operating in a salary cap league is every team has a fixed number of dollars, right? The entire spending for the entire league is fixed. The salary cap is $200 million times 32 teams. Then that's um, what, like $6.4 billion that teams are going to spend on players. The pool of wins is fixed. There's um, 17 times 16, whatever that works out to, wins up for grabs every year. And so the number of wins per dollar in the NFL is fixed. You have a fixed pool of wins. You have a fixed pool of dollars to spend. The teams that get more wins are going to be the teams that get more wins per dollar spent. Um, and so it's not just a question of like, is this player good? Is this player bad? It's a question of if you have a good player and you're paying him too much, that means you can't have good players elsewhere. Um, and so I think Kansas City was absolutely right to trade Tyreek Hill. Miami's obviously loving having him right now. Usually with contract stuff like this, the bill comes due in a couple years. And, and two years from now, three years from now, once Miami has to give a big contract to Tua, we're going to see like what they're having to give up. The, the costs for this Tyreek Hill trade are, are truly going to start to hit home. Um, but it, at, at the end of the day, NFL player value is really a function of surplus value over their contract. And especially trading rookie picks is hard because rookie picks are the only, they're the only players in the NFL that are just consistently underpaid um, because of the rookie wage scale. I think it's like 40% of Super Bowl participants in the last couple decades have had a quarterback on a rookie contract because it's just a, such a massive advantage because they're overpaid or they're underpaid by so much. Um, and the NFL is, is a wins per dollar league. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and, you know, you think about Miami as an example of that. It seems to me their best shot of being able to avoid having to wash dishes in order to pay for their meal at the end of the, you know, at the end of this um, Tyreek Hill period or a couple of years down the line when they have to consider paying to a Tonga Vailoa would be if Skylar Thompson, their rookie quarterback that, that was their late their sixth round pick i think sixth or seventh round pick turns out to be a starter caliber quarterback and a good one if they can if he can be that exceptional player they might be able to get a couple more years where they have a lighter load salary cap wise um towards the end of his contract and be able to extend that shelf life for that team to be able to pay for maybe an extra free agent or two, or or player in you know play, or high end player that they would need on their team to be a a complete team. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because the NFL has a salary floor as well as a salary cap. Um, teams are required to spend at a minimum a certain amount, so they can't just say, you know, there's no players out there right now who are worth as much as they're asking, who will, who will impact the bottom line as much as the cost. Um, and because rookies as a class are underpaid, right? 
NFL teams, after they sign their rookies, they have more money chasing fewer wins. And so veterans as a class kind of have to be overpaid just tautologically. Um, and so, yeah, a team can't just fill out its entire roster with undervalued guys because that leaves you well, well, well below the salary floor. You have to overpay some people. And if you're going to overpay, there's a strong case to be made for overpaying for the Tyreek Hills of the world. And there's also, I mean, there's synergistic effects, like maybe Tyreek Hill is worth X dollars in one team and he's worth Y dollars on another team. I think Tyreek Hill probably is worth more to the Miami Dolphins than he is to the Kansas City Chiefs because we know that Patrick Mahomes can live without him and we know that uh, Mike McDaniel can really take advantage of his skills. Um, so it's it's a lot more complicated than just that. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it's it's a resource-constrained league and, and the teams that win are the teams that are going to get the most value out of their resources. Anytime I see a team trading picks for the right to give a veteran player like a top of market contract. I hate that trade. It's just, sometimes it can work out on, on very rare occasions, but most of the time it's like, you know, the bears trading for Khalil Mack. Mack was a great player for them. He was easily worth what they paid him, but he wasn't worth more than what they paid him. And so then losing those picks kind of helped prevented the, the bears from becoming a contender in his time there. Yeah. That's yeah. You can certainly see that how you're really killing the resources you have to to sustain you know to build a team as a result of that so yeah i can see how that makes a lot of sense um you know the last thing i kind of want to touch on for this week would be the idea of quarter you know quarterbacks and running quarterbacks and whether or not they have a shorter shelf life due to injury because they're runners. And it seems like something that might be common sense um, in the league. But And, I, and I've heard a lot of qu former quarterbacks turned commentators talk about this week, notably was Trent Green as Justin Fields was en route to breaking Michael Vick's single-game rushing record at the quarterback position. At the beginning of the game, Trent Green was saying, well, there's a... There's a shorter shelf life for these guys because they just you fear they're going to take too many hits. And Green, I, I you know I look back at when I think of the frame of reference of of Trent Green, he was a quarterback in an era that was the unprotected era for quarterbacks, or relatively far less protected than what this generation of quarterbacks get to deal with. He was a tortoise relative to Justin Fields. He did take a lot of punishment outside the pocket, but they were because in an unprotected era when he, even when it was semi-protected, he would slide and he, I remember an infamous hit where he, he tried to slide and he tried to slide late and he got his head basically nearly, you know, he nearly got decapitated on that hit and was out for a long period of time. He was, but he also got hurt in the pocket in a game that basically brought on the Kurt Warner era in in St. Louis. And I, I think that when I, I, a lot of this is anecdotal, but when I watch these quarterbacks like um, Jackson or Fields or Kyler Murray, I rarely see them take hits when they break the pocket as runners or when they, they're designed um, on design plays as runners. Oftentimes they're exiting the boundary and at worst they're getting shoved a little bit. 
Um, they're not getting shoved into the seats or into a water cooler or, or in the awkward situations. Oftentimes they're not even getting touched. And or when they move away from the pocket and break the pocket and run, they're good at being able to slide or avoid most of the contact. And I understand that you know that there's this idea of the stress of of the wear and tear of running, but I don't think it's any far greater than it is with a lot of other positions that play 10, 12, that can go 10 to 12 years in the league. Um, and in addition to that, it seems to me, Adam, that a lot of the quarterbacks, most of the quarterbacks that I see get injured, it happens from the pocket where they're in a more static position and they're getting hit from an angle that they can't see coming. And it's usually a lower angle or an angle where their foot's planted in a in a position where that's going to cause more damage to their knees or they're going to be their body's going to be open to taking a shot in the chest or things like that because I even think back to a guy like Steve McNair who while certainly in the unpro- less protected era he took some damage as a runner and he was more of a um you know a power runner at times and he was an avoidance runner in in terms of style but I remember some of the big injuries that he took were in the pocket taking hits like the the cracked sternum that he the sternum injury that he had and against the Vikings was an injury where he literally took a helmet to the chest throwing a ball in the pocket um, that hindered him all year and so to me it may not be as much about running quarterback versus pocket quarterback it's whether the pocket whether the quarterback has two things in to, to their um, benefit in their style one is do they maneuver the pocket efficiently um, the more efficiently they maneuver the less awkward positions they put their bodies in and they also have a better feel for moving around it so a guy like Lamar Jackson is great in moving in the pocket and was and is very efficient in his movements in a way that Tom Brady's very efficient, who's a relative statue to Lamar Jackson. Whereas Kyler Murray is, to me, run, moves around like the road runner. He just kind of flits from spot to spot, and but everything's very much like Michael Vick was, very dynamic movement, often out of control and less efficient. Everything's running to a spot, and then you're off balance trying to trying to stop and set and throw. Um, and that can be difficult to do. And it also doesn't allow you to locate your receivers downfield um, as quickly and get rid of the ball because if you have to run and stop and reset so that your body's in control, that's an issue compared to what a, a Brady or Jackson does. And then it's also the style of runner you are outside the pocket. I look at Jackson once again and while he can make sharp cuts, he has he and Patrick Mahomes have a lot of curvy linear movement to be able to kind of bend around and not make hard planning cuts. And, or when they do, their feet aren't way outside of their their pad level. Um, like a guy like Kadarius Tony, who gets a lot of soft tissue injuries, you know, who isn't a quarterback, but still, when you look at his play, his feet were often so far outside his body that you're putting more stress on your body to make the cuts are beautiful when you see them and they're dynamic and can be very effective but there are also cuts that are highly demanding on your body to the point that if you get injured and that's the way you move around the field um you're you're 
are actually having to rely on more stress on your body to do your basic functions of what for you is your job and how you play than someone who's more efficient, who, you know, they can actually do the same things that they have done healthy that they can do a little bit hurt. Whereas a guy like Kadarius Tony, you look at him and I'm concerned that you or even a um, Kyler Murray or Michael Vick at certain times in his career that, their natural playing style puts far more stress and load on their body in a way that if they're being nicked up, they're far less effective um, because they it requires a much higher degree of health to execute the things they naturally that they tend to do um, stylistically. And so you look at someone like, you know, Cam Newton or a power or Malik Willis, who is a very slashing mover, but also cuts back into traffic a lot and takes hits doing so and finishes more with his pads and more like a running back finishes than a quarterback trying to avoid hits and those are guys stylistically I'd be more worried about but I think what I wonder about Adam is that this whole idea of running quarterbacks taking hits is it more of a function of historically the position being a pocket quarterback position and the data that we have is skewed towards the history of a position that really discriminated towards pocket quarterbacks. Some of that was race-based and the style of, of quarterbacking there and the expectation of what they wanted the style to be because even with white quarterbacks who maybe were in college and very good movers and runners, oftentimes they got moved to slot receiver or to linebacker, or to a safety position, or even a running back position, um, because they felt like they'd be more helpful to the team um, with their running ability. Um, I even think as recently as Ryan Tannehill, who you know at Texas A&M came as a quarterback, but they were they had a, they had another quarterback, which was interesting because they had a black quarterback at that time, um, but they wanted to get him on the field and use him, and he was a all-conference slot receiver. Um, and there are some people who might joke that he might have had a better NFL career as a wide receiver than he did as a quarterback, though I'd say he's been pretty good as a quarterback at the end of the day. Um, but those are things that you can see with the tendencies of coaches that maybe there's a self-selecting thing here and we don't have enough data to look at running quarterbacks and say definitively one way or the other. But my think my thinking just from watching the film that's a little that saying it simplistically running quarterbacks get hurt more might have to do more with style and than it does with that the fact that they just run yeah i mean there's actually some good data on this um first i want to start quick correction you mentioned that uh justin fields broke michael vick's single game rushing record nice. uh, actually the single game rushing record belongs to colin kaepernick Ah. Uh, Michael Vick had the regular season record, but Colin Kaepernick ran for 181 or 183 against Green Bay in the playoffs. Okay. And for some reason, the NFL does not include playoff games in its single game records, even though that's it's arguably even more impressive to do it in the playoffs. Right. Um, but in this house, we we hold up Colin Kaepernick as the single game rushing hold record Fair. holder still. Fair. Um, and then yeah, you were talking about you know, Trent Green playing in the in the era where they didn't protect quarterbacks. Um, I was reading an article from like 2000 on injury rates 
at the various positions for fantasy football. Um, and I was floored. I mean, I didn't really remember it because it, it was so long ago, but I was floored like starting quarterbacks back then from like the mid nineties to the early two thousands actually missed more games per year than starting running backs and starting wide receivers. Wow. They're missing like 3.5 games a year on average. Um, so it's, I mean, and, and not all of that was injuries. Sometimes they would get benched or demoted or whatever, but most of that was injuries. And, and so it's hard to draw too many conclusions about injury rates using older data like that because they were just dramatically higher. The NFL made a very strong and concerted and successful effort at protecting quarterbacks starting in the early 2000s through the mid-2000s, um, where to, today in the average starting quarterback misses like one game a year. Uh, to injury it's it's just night and day compared to like by far the least injured of the uh quote-unquote skill positions um so yeah it's hard to draw sweeping conclusions from injury data i mean if you want to talk about career longevity uh bobby lane played in the 50s um you know the three big quarterbacks in the 50s were norm van brocklin Otto Graham, and bobby lane those were the three hall of famers bobby lane retired second all-time in career passing yards he was the mobile guy of the bunch he was kind of the the gunslinger go out scramble around very schoolyard style of play um and he played until he was i think 36 with pittsburgh um at a time when not many people were playing that long um fran tarkenton yep very very mobile quarterback <laughs> not only did he set the all-time career passing yardage record he held that record for longer than any other player in history he's the only quarterback to own the career passing yardage record where the guy who would eventually replace him was not in the NFL yet when he retired. You know, like Dan Marino set the record by the time Dan Marino retired, um, Peyton Manning was already in the NFL. Peyton Manning set the record, obviously, by the time he retired, Tom Brady was already in the NFL. But Fran Tarkenton held it through like an entire era. Um, and he was, I mean, I think Russell Wilson's a comp I go to a lot there. Yes. He was a very mobile quarterback. Um, and he took a lot of sacks too. He um, he did. He was not great at playing within structure. Like within, he drove yeah. coaches crazy because he was freelancing so much. And he, in his mind, he knew how he wanted the play to go. And by golly, he was going to make sure it went that way. Um, took a lot of hits. Um, John Elway took a ton of hits. Yes. Um, I think they're. I don't know if they're still one and two in all-time sacks, but then also very mobile quarterbacks. Elway retired number two in passing yards. Um, so there's a lot of mobile quarterbacks, not mobile really like you see today. Um, they're just in history. Maybe Randall Cunningham and Michael Vick would really be the only analogs to these these very, very rushing skewed quarterbacks like Lamar Jackson and Justin Fields. Um, so the sample size there isn't very big, but there's just not a whole lot of evidence, at least not anything that I'd find especially compelling that these the the more mobile quarterbacks of the past were more likely to get injured than the less mobile quarterbacks now there is a lot of evidence that in the past more mobile quarterbacks have run less and less as their career progressed yeah. um, and that makes sense because if you look at like various other positions i mean you could probably speculate as to why this is more but obviously like the things that make running backs special wear out at an earlier age than the things that make quarterbacks special it's no secret that running back careers are shorter and i don't think it's necessarily just injury rates i think it's that the skills required to excel at a top level as a rusher in the nfl have a shorter shelf life and so as you get super mobile quarterbacks like for instance randall cunningham as they get older and older the the things that made them 
such a special weapon as a runner tend to dissipate faster and they tend to become more passing skewed over time. I mean, if you told me Justin Fields was going to play until he was 37 years old, I would say he's probably not even going to rush for 500 yards at age 37. Right. I get that that's what makes him what he is today. But if he makes it to 37, I don't think he's still rushing for a zillion yards every game. Lamar Jackson, he looks to me like he's going to have a long career in the NFL, but I don't think he's still going to be rushing for 1,000 yards in his 30s. He's probably going to be more, you know, maybe 500 yards in his 30s paired with, you know, a lot of, of passing and you can still use the threat of him running. Uh, so that's from a, from a cautious read of the data. I'd say that's what historical data tends to suggest. I don't know that there's really evidence that um, running quarterbacks as a class are more likely to get injured other than just everybody was more likely to get injured back in the day. It was a much more dangerous game for quarterbacks back then. Um, I don't know that running back, running quarterbacks were especially likely to get injured. There's lots of examples of running quarterbacks lasting for a long time. You know, Steve Young didn't make it very high in the all-time passing charts, but that was because of the beginning of his career, not because of the end of his career. Yeah. Um, but there is a lot of evidence that I find very compelling that suggests that running quarterbacks run less over time. You know, if, yeah. if you are a very run-focused quarterback, that'll probably last you through your 20s. But by the time you're in your 30s, um, you're going to be skewing much more towards the passing side of things. A perfect example of this that we're seeing play out is Josh Allen, because and and really the example of it is is one of the underlying reasons why this happens is that the rushing yardage, the 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 maximum totals you'll probably see with a running quarterback skewed due to their inexperience as NFL caliber passers. Um, if you have that running talent teams are more apt to say, listen, because they did this with Allen. They were, they were like, listen, we're going to have you run from shotgun. We're not going to do any design runs with you. But if you can't find your second read, just take off. We're okay with that right now. We're not going to bust you too hard for not being able to find your second or third read in this offense in, in year one. We want you to be comfortable. We want, you know, that's the code language you hear in the, in the interviews from coaches. We want them to be comfortable. We want them to play instinctively. We want them to be able to, we don't want them to think too much out on the field. Um, and we want them, we want to give them some time to get acclimated to what our system's about. And I think that part of that is just leveraging the rushing yards to the point that they get maximized early. And as the player becomes more comfortable within their passing system at reading coverages, making adjustments um, pre-snap with their receivers and being on the same page with them to do all the demanding things that you would see players like Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers and Peyton Manning do when they have veteran receivers around them who they have built that rapport and that they're on the same page with reading the different coverage um, adjustments or disguises that we often see in the NFL that we don't see in the college game, that, they're, that they end, if they're going to be good, productive quarterbacks, they start to become more efficient at finding solutions that, and being more efficient finding solutions is usually with your arm, not your legs. And so I think that that's kind of a natural outgrowth of that. One of the other things that you mentioned that I thought was fascinating and just made me think of a, a historic player who's kind of missing the boat right now, who would be the exception to the rule with running backs is Adrian Peterson, because Adrian Peterson, one is we know he's kind of a freak of an athlete in terms of 
his his ability to heal when he had that knee injury and he came back within nine months and you, you know nearly broke the rushing record um, that following year. But him playing into his 30s and playing well for a back into his 30s, the, the big thing that I always saw in film is that people would talk about him and say, well, he's done. He's not the same player he used to be. And yeah, he didn't have the long speed that he used to have. Um, he could still break tackles. He still had tremendous short area quickness. Um, his acceleration was maybe a hair less than what it was, but it's still he's, he was still a doubles hitter on a, a, a really good doubles hitter whenever he would go to a team that would use him. The thing is, is that he got caught in a bad era, if you ask me, in the sense that his his peak time, they ran a lot of power and a lot of trap and, and toss and, and, and plays where he could run gap-style plays. And then the league started to get away from that and run, embracing more of the zone offense. And he ran some zone plays, and he was okay at it, but that wasn't really his bread and butter. And then as teams were spreading out and they were having quarterbacks run play out a pistol and the shotgun, there was a lot more zone plays that he would run, and their offensive line wasn't all that great. But then when he met, went to teams that maybe ran more gap style, they were running against... Um, defenses that still weren't as spread out as they are now. Now that teams are playing too high a lot and spreading out, every team in the NFL is running these gap plays that Adrian Peterson would just kill on, even at his older age. So I'm not saying he'd be a superstar at this age, but I kind of laugh that, you know, the idea that he still wants to play, I can understand. I mean, part of that's because he needs to pay the bills, I think. But the the other thing is, I think he still could play. Like if there were a team that was that became desperate for a running back and they they needed to play off they, they needed to make a push for the playoffs, he would be he'd still be a decent bet. Um especially with what defenses are giving right now. And so I think part of it is the part of it is with running back play too, in terms of not playing to their age, I think you're absolute it makes total sense that as they get older, physically most of them can't do what they they did in their early 20s. So that starts to wear down. Part of it too is that I think the league kind of shifts in a way that sometimes what makes a running back good or where he's strong, the way offensive football tends to evolve or kind of go in a cycle, sometimes the the player also starts to fall out of favor with what defenses are doing. Um, and And then on the other hand, there's also something to do with the how efficient a player runs. You know, again, the Adrian Peterson's is the absolute freak. He is not run efficiently. He is a wide outside the body jump cutting um, player who all the things that I often tend to write about and say, this is why Kenyon Drake, you know, had difficulties early in his career. This is why certain players had difficulties. Adrian Peterson could do that and get away with it. Um, he was that kind of a player. Whereas a guy like Frank Gore was ultra efficient or Ricky Williams was ultra efficient in the movements that they had and they could play into their early to mid thirties and still be effective NFL runners, even if they weren't great fantasy players. But I think that that's a, you know, those are some things that, that you mentioned that I find kind of fascinating about this particular topic. 
Yeah, I was just looking it up since you mentioned Peterson. Um, and, uh, you know, I was saying earlier, yards per attempt is yards per carry is really just a proxy for long speed. Um, Adrian Peterson in his 20s averaged 5.0 yards per carry. Adrian Peterson in his 30s averaged 4.0 yards per carry. And like you said, like basically everything was the same skill wise, except he lost just a little bit of long speed. And there goes the yards per carry. Um, Obviously, that long speed is valuable. If you're an offense, it's great to turn that 24-yard gain into a 44-yard gain. But I, I think it's overrated in terms of importance. I mean, you look at guys who had, like Felix Jones famously had nothing but long speed, and he washed out of the NFL in a couple of years. Tatum Bell is, I think, still one of like the all-time leaders in yards per carry because he was fast. That yes. Tatum Bell was extraordinarily fast. Washed out of the NFL in a couple of years. Um so yeah, yet another reason why yards per carry is overrated. Um, yeah, I, I actually I'm curious to ask you as a as a film guy, not necessarily the outliers like Peterson, but in general, what do you see that that causes running backs to lose the ability to be a special runner as they age? Like, what's usually the precipitating cause as a decline? Why why are they less effective runners when they're older than they are when they're younger? Is it because I think that, I mean, athletically, isn't long speed one of the things that actually holds up the best as you age? Isn't it usually like change of direction <laughs> that goes more? Yes, because you think it's Ed Ginn, Daryl Green. Think of anybody who wasn't a Joey NFL Galloway, runner. Joey Galloway, you know, Deshaun Jackson, who's still yeah. getting contracts, you know, even though he makes, you know, he gets like five targets a year in the past three years, it feels like. But uh, um, you look at it, you, the long speed tends to stay. Um it's the short area acceleration that is important for running backs and the change of direction speed. It's that ability to re to, to basically stop and reaccelerate fast after you've come to a stop fast. That that takes a lot of pressure on your joints and, and and ligaments to really hold up and do that. And I think the wear and tear of multiple ankle sprains or serious sprains um and you're the pounding you just don't have the you don't have the cushion and the and the shock absorption really of your body to be able to handle that and recover as quickly and if you've ever as you get older you realize i mean i can just say you know i've i've realized that as someone who um played a lot of even if it wasn't like actual football in pads and shells but played football every day and ran around every day and turned ankles and turned knees and and did that probably for you know probably a good 16 years of my life um every day doing that and then as you get and and coming out fairly unscathed but like then getting older and you there's certain things that you realize you can't do that aren't really about speed like when you're when you're younger you 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 see a flight of stairs and you might think it's fun to jump down the flight like the or half the flight and i used to do that a lot when i was younger like the idea like i if i were i'm on the second floor of my house and i think it, it at 20 I'm sure that if I had to jump out the second floor window that I'm, I'm pretty confident that I could land and probably just be a little bruised and, but I'd just roll through it and I'd be fine. Now I think about doing, I'm thinking, um, how many bones am I going to break? 
um, if I had to do that. And it's a it's a far different idea. And it's, it doesn't have to be that dramatic and just be like a, two or three stairs. Could, you know, can, would I jump... Would I jump down two or three stairs at a time uh, or a whole flight if it's a smaller flight? Would I, would I do that now? And the answer is absolutely not. Not unless there was, not unless um, the building was going to blow up, you know, and the, you know, and even doing that and it would better be only one time I try doing that because uh, I'll be limping the rest of the way. Um, and I think that that's part of it with these backs is that they, is that that ability to, to recover not only just after a game, but within a play, um, within a moment of stopping and starting that elasticity of their body. So I think a lot of it has to do with change of direction and acceleration. And then on top of it too is recovery, ability to recover from from games. Because as you get older, I mean, it's just natural. You it's a you're you're in a position that you're getting in a car wreck on a regular basis and when you're younger and you get knocked around like that you could play for two or three hours and get hit you could take some hard hits and i've certainly taken hits that you know that you could people could hear from like <laughs> hear from a distance and and they're and even without pads and then the next day be fine maybe be a little muscle soreness that's about it um but as you get older and that, and you go through that, and you play, you play like that. The next day, you you have trouble getting out of bed, and then as you get old, and you've done that for many years, I think what happens is that they just don't recover as fast. And now, what maybe took them two days to to be back to ready to go, now might take them five, or might take them two weeks to really actually be back where they are. And so it's like I'm gonna have one good game. And then you're, you might not be able to use me at near the volume that you could use me before, or else I'm just going to, I'm just going to suck pretty much at, you know, for the next two to three weeks. And then it's just going to be this spiral that never gets better. Yeah. I saw, um, on that topic, uh, you know, there's the whole like workload debate, like the curse of 370 or whatever and a lot of that's junk a lot of that's right. pseudoscience that's that's another episode right there um <laughs> one of the one of the best and most interesting looks at it i found was looking at it at on a single game basis and they're like all right season to season i don't know we, we're not really finding any effect but like in situations where running back gets just an extreme number of carries in a single game there is evidence yes they are at a heightened risk of injury over the next like three or four weeks while their body recovers, you know, they are at a lower level of effectiveness. Um, if they stack together like a couple extreme games, then, then it increases and, um, and then that risk fades away over time again. And I always thought that was an interesting look. Um, but yeah, just more generally, um, I'm, I'm really big on heuristics. I'm really big on rules of thumb. Any theory of football that relies on predicting injuries is probably a bunk theory. Right. You know, if, if your theory is that running quarterbacks need to be able to pass in order to have a long career, yeah, I totally buy that. If your theory is that running quarterbacks are more likely to get hurt, I don't know. It, there's just been so much history. And in theory, it's something that can be done well. You can make probabilistic predictions about injuries, but the effects are so small I mean, like, if you tear your ACL once, you are legitimately at a doubled risk of tearing that same ACL in the future. It's it's a legitimate 
well-documented, well-demonstrated phenomenon. If you tear your ACL, you're twice as likely to tear it going forward. But the effect size is, in any given year, 3% of NFL players are going to tear their ACL. Um, and it's, I think like 70% of them are going to be non-contact. They'll just be running around in the open field and they'll make a bad cut and boom, their ACLs just explodes. Um, so you think about it, a doubled chance of that. Okay. Now you're at a 6% chance of tearing your ACL, which means there's a 94% chance that you won't tear your ACL <laughs> in any given year. The effect is just so small yeah. and you could go through and you could make nuanced probabilistic estimates and be like, oh yeah, this guy, but what it works out to is like this injury prone guy should be expected to miss like 0.47 more games on average. The, yeah. Just the effect sizes are not that big if you're doing it in a principled manner. And unfortunately, we've seen a lot of, um, I mean, I don't know that, I, I'm not going to say snake oil salesmen, because I think a lot of people are well-intentioned and they just don't know enough to know what they don't know. Right. Um, but a lot of people in the industry are trying to, to their, their, reach is ex, their, their reach is exceeding their grasp um, on injury analysis. And so just as a general rule, anytime anybody's saying anything about injuries, I just default to a very healthy level of skepticism. Yeah, and I think that's wise. And certainly, Gene Gene Bramwell, if he's listening right now, is smiling. So, um, you know, that for sure is, has always been his mantra with that as well. And I, I, I think about this in the sense that, you know, until we really understand the mechanics of movement on a very intricate level, then and then they're able to study that and project information based on it, it's it's going to be very difficult because even, a, and, and that's a very dangerous territory because the mechanics of movement differs by individual and their body type. You know, you can't look, this, this has shown up very much with, say, throwing the football. You look at Tom Brady and there were a lot of quarterback people, especially, and this is the similar thing where they they will sit there and tell you anecdotally, well, you know, this is what good quarterback mechanics are for throwing the football, for dropping back, setting, and, and delivering it. And they based it on Tom Brady or a Peyton Manning. But even those guys are, if you look at it closely, are dramatically different in what they did. And Brett Favre, his, he, to me, I mean, his mechanics, you'd see him in his 40s bring the ball down to his knee and throw a football. And usually, you know, Tim Tebow would do that and Tim Tebow couldn't really do that effectively um, to have a sustainable career, but Brett Favre could play into his, four, you know, into his, his, you know, until his late thirties, early forties, and do it effectively. And so that that point is is that every player is built differently, they move differently, and so you can't apply a broad brush of this is how the mechanics work. You have to you'd have to be able to study it and say based on their body composition, this movement is inefficient and puts more load on their body than it should. And therefore, it you know, the Kadarius Tony example, that that's my theory. I, I have no way of being able to substantiate it as something that's really predictive and may actually play out with him. But that was my concern with him at Florida was you'd see him just get way out from his body for what the technique calls for. And maybe the injuries he has don't have to do with that, but he did. they were saying he slips a lot in his routes. I'd see it a lot that he'd slip a lot in his routes. 
and how awkward of a position he was in, you could see that there was that players who are who don't look like they're in a compact position at times where they should be that that's just common you know it may not turn out to be I'm correct but it looks common sense like to say hopefully it doesn't take a hit or slip on this because you do that and that's going to be you're going to land awkwardly you're going to plant awkwardly your body's going to go in a direction that it should that's unnatural um with some of these things and I think that that's until we get to that level and I don't know how that'll happen unless every player has their body scanned on a regular basis with equipment that we don't have now, nowadays or the price the price structure is would be way out of a you know the conditions to be able to do that they would need a specialized laboratory to do that um regularly and there'd have to be some sort of impact of why they're doing it that could make it work it's not going to it's not going to happen that's actually um one of the applications I'm most excited for on the player tracking data is health and safety stuff. Because in theory, you got the microchips on the players and you can track stuff like, you know, like how many miles did a guy log in sure. a day and you can see who's getting overworked. You know, Chip Kelly came to the NFL and he promised to do that. And that was one of the most things I was most excited about for Chip Kelly to try and bring science to, into this into this player health and safety area. Um, you got the accelerometers. You can like measure like who's getting the big hits and um, you're right that you're not going to be able to get like the individualities of the movement. You know, you, you won't be able to say like at what angle is he throwing based on how his his arm attaches to his shoulder, like what's the optimal angle and and a lot of that biomechanics will remain a black box. But in theory, I think there's a lot of um, p potential and, and I don't really know what NFL teams are doing there because NFL teams are a closed mouth bunch. If they found an edge, they certainly don't want to give it away. I do think it's interesting. I mean, I I have a lot of healthy respect for the nature of randomness, and I know that random stuff is random, and random is a lot streakier than people believe. Um, there's a this anecdote like statistics professors love to do. They'll they'll split their class into two groups, and they tell one group flip a coin a hundred times and write the sequence on this board. And they tell the other group, like, make up a random sequence of heads and tails and write the sequence on this board. And then the statistics professor comes in and he tells which, um, which sequence is real and which one was made up. And the tell is always the made up sequence never has long runs. Like there's never seven heads in a row in a made up sequence of flips, but it happens all the time. Play, yeah, play backgammon. If you play backgammon and you watch someone roll doubles like roll double sixes three times in a row or these crazy double combinations and you i've played backgammon online like the little lord of the board game and I, that's my little break time thing i do and there's times i've either rolled or i've seen people roll that and i go you'd have to think the game's fixed sometimes you know when you see some of these crazy random combinations like that i had uh my family like our our family history our family game is marbles um, and it, it's one of those where, yeah, if you like roll sixes, you get to roll again. And I was like in this situation where like I had all my marbles home and then my kid rolled like seven sixes in a row and somehow managed to come back and beat me. And, it, but yeah, random is like that sometimes it's, it's, it's not usually like that, but random, anything can happen. And so I try to be very, very respectful of that when I see things that look like patterns in the data, because a lot of times randomness looks like there's patterns in the data. So with that said, it's interesting to me how we seem to have teams that are consistently more injured than other teams. 
and we seem to have teams that are consistently less injured than other teams. And yes, that might just be randomness being random, but it's it's compelling enough to me to make me think that like there are some teams that have some sort of secret sauce that they figured out some way. And I don't I don't know whether it's their strength and conditioning program. I don't know if they're secretly using player tracking data or something. But I I think that some teams have figured out better than others how to keep their players healthy. And and it might just me being fooled by randomness. We're humans. It happens to all of us. We are pattern recognizing machines. We will find. 180% of all patterns out there. If there's three patterns out there, we're going to find eight of them. I wonder if the Vi- I wonder if the Vikings are one of those teams. Um, because I I know someone with a biomechanics background who did some work with them in the past. And I was watching something recently where they were talking that was on the subject of recovery and the, the 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 microchip data, the RFID data that they were using, and how they manage workload and how they manage nutrition, and there, and and there was a Steve Smith was doing like one of his things where he goes around to each NFL team, and when they covered the Vikings, they covered you know health and nutrition um, aspect of it, and there are a lot of you know guys like Patrick Peterson are on that team, Adam Thielen. Um, and you would see them talking about, you know, how this was very recent, um, but that the, the, the level of, um, you know, that with this particular team, what they track and look at in terms of rest and, and workload and what they should be eating or drinking and the diets kind of specialized towards them um, was like way different than what it was when they entered the league. Yeah, I just checked real quick. Um, so I just used football outsiders adjusted games lost, which it's not a perfect metric. There's no such thing as a perfect metric. All models are wrong. Some models are useful. Um, I just quickly checked that, and it looks like the Vikings are pretty consistently middle of the pack with respect to injuries. Okay. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> well, on that note, that's the you know that's the way that goes. But you know, this was a fun conversation as always, Adam, and you can. Um, you guys can find Adam Harstead at Football Guys. You can find him at uh, Adam Harstead on Twitter. Um, he's a terrific follow. You know, obviously he's a terrific co-host um, to have on this show. Appreciate all the feedback that we've gotten with this show. They certainly the the listeners of of the RSP Cast have really enjoyed um, this show, having you on and and sharing the information that they that they have um, pretty much on a weekly basis. Um, you can find me at Matt Waldman on Twitter. You can find me at Football Guys and, of course, the RSP YouTube channel, Matt Waldman's RSP Film Room. Um, thanks again. We'll